Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. We also receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to save the communities of plants and related beings and conditions that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, I'm thankful for good food and the many souls who grow it for us all year long. Around the world, really. But this week, we explore life on a small, organic, and integrated family farm of humans, plants, other animals, and soil living with their seasons and providing fresh produce year-round for their own region. Since 1997, Matthew Martin and his Pyramid Farms, which since 2004 has included his wife, Lisa Carl have been bringing tasty organic produce, beautiful flowers and greens throughout the seasons to the north state of interior Northern California. As Matthew and Lisa say, you can taste the love. And I am thankful for that. I caught up with Matthew earlier this year, and I'm so pleased to welcome him to the program in a week of thanks and when all of his produce sales from the Chico Farmers Market go to the benefit of our local school garden programs. Welcome, Matthew. I'm so happy to chat with you. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. It's an honor to be with you. I'm going to ask you to start off with if you were to tell listeners a mission statement for Pyramid Farms as it exists in Butte County, California in 2021, what would that mission statement be for all that is encompassed under the name of Pyramid Farms, Matthew? Our mission statement, in the largest sense, is to grow the best vegetables and flowers that we can while considering our environment, uh, the people in our community and on the farm, and um, the economics of uh, farming. Um, and we, we strive to, to intersect all those three larger dynamics, all the, the smaller dynamics within those, um, to find that midpoint in those. Um, so we're not out far on one side or out far on one, the other side of uh, decision-making process and, and uh, how we run the farm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So give us the very basic description of, of what Pyramid Farm is, and by which I mean sort of an abstract of what we're going to get into a little later in the conversation, but how big is it? What do you grow? How long have you been farming? So uh, Pyramid Farms, the, the whole property is uh, uh, 11 acres and we're located just on the outskirts of, of Chico, California. And uh, we have uh, about eight and a half acres of uh, certified organic vegetables that we grow. And then we also, my wife, Lisa, also um, has a uh, cut flower business and uh, she also raises um a few chickens, which now though she used to raise them commercially, uh, we stopped that endeavor um, because it wasn't economically sustainable. And then she has a small uh, goat share 
So uh, a small irrigated pasture uh, with some, uh, some milk goats. So would it be fair to describe Pyramid Farms and its uh, variety of endeavors with you and Lisa as a small diversified family market farm? Yeah, we um, we sell uh, locally and regionally at farmers markets and then um, also uh, direct to store and uh, restaurants, um, uh, wholesale direct to store and restaurants. So before we get into what all of that means and, and how it actually manifests every day on, on the ground, Matthew, take us back a little bit. Tell us more about where you were born and raised and, you know, who were the people and plants and places that grew you into a man for whom the very, very hard work of 365 days of being a farmer would be a draw and a, a life path for you. <laughs> so I was born in, uh, just outside of uh, Denver, Colorado, and my parents had a very large influence on, uh, on why I became a farmer. So when we lived in Colorado, uh, my mother had a very, very, very large uh, vegetable garden for our own use and freezing and canning. And um, my father also grew um, flowers and arranged flowers for the church that we attended. His dream uh, was to uh, start a, a nursery and a flower farm on uh, some land that my uh, great uncle, who was a poultry farmer, had, but they weren't able to get it rezoned. Um, so he had to continue on his, his regular work. Um, so it just had to be a, a passionate hobby of his. Relocated to the, to the Bay Area when I was quite young. And then um, we had a smaller vegetable garden, but we always, uh, my parents were like big do-it-yourselfers. Um, so we would uh, drive to um, uh, farms and buy tomatoes and fruit. And we would uh, can tomatoes and fruit uh, and put those up for the year. Um, so that was uh, a, a big influence in, in me becoming a farmer. And so you moved to the Bay Area. So first of all, let's just acknowledge what a pretty big switch that is from, I think, a zone five or six to a zone eight or nine and, yeah. um, you know, completely different elevation, completely different cultural requirements, except that both places have long, hot, sunny summer seasons. Um, and there are quite a nice overlap of, of plants that grow well between the two regions, certainly in my experience. Yeah, um, I was I was five when we moved to California, <laughs> um, and so I went from you know um, uh, you know playing in my father's small greenhouse and and probably mucking things up um, to you know being in charge of uh, helping uh, dig up the garden and weed the garden um, that we had in the Bay Area. Um, uh, the, the scale, we, you know, we didn't have a, as much, uh, land to garden with. If my mother was me, I would have dug up, uh, I would have dug up the lawn <laughs> to put, uh, more garden in, but you know, this was the, the 1970s. So there wasn't a, a really, uh, any lawn to garden movement 
at that time. No, not yet. Not yet. And so you moved to the Bay Area. Take us from there. What what educational or work experience pathway leads you to Pyramid Farm and Butte County, California, which is very different than the Bay Area, actually much more similar to Colorado in my experience. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I came to, Ch- I came to Chico after I was, um, uh, done with school. I was, uh, trained as an automotive, uh, mechanic. Um, and I came to, uh, came to Chico because I had friends going to school here and, um, I wanted to relocate out of the Bay Area. Um, and so I, um, I came and moved here and of course we have these wonderfully long, hot summers and this beautiful soil. So in, uh, one of the houses I lived in, I, I wanted to start a vegetable garden because, you know, I, I loved vegetables and I was, you know, grew up with gardens, um, and was very interested in, in learning how to, how to grow, you know, grow vegetables. Um, and so I asked my landlord, and hey, can I can I put a vegetable garden in? Mm. And at that time, uh, there was there, uh, the backyard had way too much shade, um, and the front yard. So in the front yard, between the sidewalk and the street, there was uh, about a six six by twenty foot uh, foot area. Mm-hmm. And he gave me permission. I dug it up and planted vegetables. Um, in between the sidewalk and the street. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, you know the 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 well uh, named Hellstrip Garden, right? Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. It 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 uh, it quite uh, quite rapidly started to grow into the street a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so my neighbors had to be careful um, uh, when they planted uh, parked their car not to drive on my uh, tomato vines that were sprawling into the street. <laughs> That's great. And so that was your first sort of adult garden on your own away from your parents? Yeah, that was my first adult garden. And I had that for a couple of years. And I wasn't at the point when I where I knew I wanted to farm, but I, I wanted to, to see how many how much of my food I could grow. So a friend of mine knew a couple very wonderful couple um, Ron and Fran Taburin, and I called them up and told them what I wanted, and they invited me out to um, their land. I said, yeah, I want to grow a bunch of vegetables, and they said, okay, well, here's the spot we got, and go to it. All we ask is, you know, some money for water and and to be able to raise your vegetable garden, um, and so I did that, um, and that was that's about thirty years ago now. <laughs> so what? Uh, how how big was that first kind of you know vaguely commercial endeavor? I'm not sure, but you know, like big output endeavor. And what were you growing at that time? What were your initial crops, Matthew? Oh, uh, squash and tomatoes and garlic. Um, Oh, you know, peppers, the, the, you know, the, the, everything that everyone, you know, at every home gardener, uh, starts to grow at, at first. Um, and then I, I was trying, I tried some, some small grains and, and some experiments, you know, some sunflowers for grains and, 
and some amaranth for grain. Um, you know, I, I took a shot at uh, growing a lot of stuff and it was highly educational and it just, it kind of lit the fire under me and just created that passion for growing things and eating good things. So I started to to decide, I'm like, I think maybe I want to pursue farming as a vocation and leave uh, automotive mechanics behind and see if I can grow things uh, for a living. And so what was the first year that you took that leap and left one vocation for the next vocation? And I kind of, I kind of like the relationship between the two fields because they're both about how things work right? They're both about like figuring out the puzzle of working systems that we rely on every day all around us. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of problem solving in, in, in both vocations. And of course, uh, knowing how to fix, uh, fix things at break um, is, a, is a super handy, uh, <laughs> a super handy skill for me. Sometimes I swear I'm spending half my time fixing stuff. Right. <laughs> You know, when the tractor breaks or the lawnmower breaks, I, I know how to fix it. I don't have to, I'm not uh, dependent on a mechanic to fix that. So that's, that's quite helpful. So what year was this that you swapped one for the other as your primary livelihood, or at least trying to make it? So in 1997, I had about two acres of vegetables, way more than I could eat, way more than I could can. And my girlfriend at the time said, you know, why don't you sell your vegetables? And I was like, oh, I don't have enough. They're not good enough. And she said, no, they're fantastic and you've got plenty. And so I, I could not get into the, the local farmer's market in here in Chico because it's very, very competitive. Um, and so I ha- also at the same time had a, a piece of property up in Grass Valley, California, about about 70 miles away from here up in the, uh, in the foothills. Mm-hmm. And so we would go up there occasionally. And so one weekend when we were up there, we went to the farmer's market and asked the farmer's market whether they're accepting new vendors. And they gave me the, what I needed and said, here's the application and we'll get you set up and get you a spot in the market. And so that was 1997. And that was a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah. And the Grass Valley market is also a really good market. But one thing I should point out for, um, you know, listeners who might be in very different um, areas and climates is that one of the remarkable things about our market in Chico is that it is a year round farmers market active 52 weeks out of the year, um, come rain, frost, you know, we don't have snow per se in our town, you know, maybe once every 10 years we get a dusting. But so the, the, the competitiveness and the year round aspect of that farmer's market, you know, really does help, I think, to make it a viable living. Do you agree with that, Matthew? Yeah, being being able to sell year round is a huge, huge benefit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't gone the way of a lot of farmers with uh, season extension, um, be and for multiple reasons. Uh, but one of those reasons is I I still can have uh, crops I overwinter throughout the winter um, and into the spring. 
Um, so I, I, I haven't chose to go on the, the season extension route, but I have like uh, carrots that are, that are uh, late summer planted and we dig and harvest all through winter and early spring. Um, so I don't, having a year round market is a huge advantage uh, for me. So I've got year round cash flow and, and access to being able to sell, sell our, our goods um, whenever, not just, just through a peak season. Right. And so when you say season extension beyond kind of strategic uh, crops for particular, you know, seasons and succession planting and, and that, what do you mean by that? Um, like I will use uh, Agribon for, for, for cross cover, but we don't have uh, large hoop houses, ah, okay. uh, yep. large hoop houses uh, to, for, for, you know, protecting things, keeping things warm in a, in a fall or, or winter. Um, I do use uh, a lot of uh, frost protection methods, Agribon on, on hoops. In the spring, we, where I'm at, uh, we're in a low spot, a hollow. So we'll get frost in our area when no one around us gets frost. We're about, we're about five to six degrees uh, cooler uh, than surrounding areas because the the cold air loves to drain down the slope uh, and, and come out to, and spend the night on the farm. This is Cultivating Place. This week, I'm thankful for food. Every week, I am thankful for food and the people who grow it for us. We're in conversation today with Matthew Martin, who, along with Lisa Carl, grows over 30 varieties of organic vegetables and beautiful flowers, as well as milking a few goats on Pyramid Farms, an integrated organic family farm since 1997. We'll be right back after a break with more from Matthew. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible through proud support from the American Horticultural Society, soon to turn 100 years old and still growing strong. The American Horticultural Society is committed to integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and the joy that reminds us all of the vibrancy and relevance of gardening in our world. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the AHS. For the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. And I would tell you that these memberships make fantastic holiday gift offerings for the gardeners, garden supporters, and the hope to be gardeners in all of our lives. Cultivating Place is also made possible in part by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to save California's native plants and places using both head and heart. The California Native Plant Society's festive winter games, Wreath Masters, is back for season two, and your deadline to submit is coming up soon on December 5th. So get your entries in. This friendly competition invites California plant lovers to craft wreaths or wreath-like creations using at least 51% California native plants from your own garden or another cultivated source. No wild foraged material, please. 
When you're ready, submit photos of your creations into one of the six categories of the competition by December 5th, celebrating the seasonal beauty of California's plants in our daily lives together, over 150 fantastic wreaths were submitted to the 2020 Wreath Master Fund. This year, CNPS is hosting public workshops, virtual demonstrations, and more to help you complete your wreath. As a judge, I want to see your submissions there. While everyone can enjoy being inspired by the submissions, only California residents are eligible to submit. For all the details and fresh seasonal fun, head over to www.cnps.org forward slash wreathmasters. I'll see you there. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know, I think this conversation is actually the perfect follow-up to last week's conversation on kinship with Gavin Van Horn and Rowan White. Because we really are what we eat. I mean, literally, we are built from everything we eat. And while I am grateful for the produce in my very small garden, I'm deeply mindful of the many, many lives who grow all the food I couldn't possibly grow. Matthew's most amazing, almost year-round, delicious sweet carrots remind me of poet Ross Gay's reverie, examining the relationship between kind and kin and his deep love of carrots and other kinds of lives and loves of this autumn into winter harvest and gratitude season. Do you remember Ross reading that in our interview with him? I'll provide a link in this week's episode show notes so you can go back and enjoy that this week as well. We're back now to our conversation with Matthew Martin of Pyramid Farms in Chico, California. Small farming is backbreaking, land-based work born of endurance and love. As we come back, Matthew shares more about the beginnings of Pyramid Farms. Okay, so my first uh, hobby garden, it was the shape, uh, roughly the shape of a pyramid. And so that's where Pyramid Farms initially came in from um, that and the, and the confluence of, of the Fertile Crescent in the birthplace of modern agriculture. And I've, I've picked that name and stuck to it ever since. And then tell me about, yeah, the current Pyramid Farm. Okay, so we've got eight and a half acres of, of mixed vegetables uh, in the field. And then my wife has some, uh, a small cut flower operation that, that, that she's, she's still developing and ramping up and, and trying not to uh, steal too much land from me. <laughs> We have three full-time employees that live here on the farm also, and we sell at our local farmer's markets here and then a regional farmer's market and then local wholesale uh, direct-to-stores and regional wholesale direct-to-stores and restaurants also. We market year-round. We're always at at our local Chico Saturday farmer's market and have been for, I think we've been a vendor there for about almost 20 years now. And then May through November, we also do a farmer's market in Grass Valley, which is about 70 miles away, which was 
the first market we were able actually to to attend. I run the I run the vegetable operation. My wife runs the the flour and goats, and we do our best to uh, stay out of each other's way and support <laughs> each other any way we can. Mm-hmm. She gets to make her flour decisions independently of what I want, <laughs> and the same thing. She's always been super supportive of me growing vegetables. Right, I'm indebted to her for all her support. And, and care and putting up with the fact that I work six days a week and am on Sunday usually super exhausted and, and just want to sit on the couch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so um, on this current 11 acres, you are out in the valley, the northern Sacramento Valley. You are on pretty fabulous soil that is well our soil here isn't our famous vina loam that we have in the area the vina loam is a class one soil awesome super deep our soil here is uh, a kendall clay which is a a black clay and so essentially it's an old ancient uh, wetland what would have been a bog Um, there's a seasonal seasonal creek that runs uh, borders one side of the property and so um, it's a sticky black clay, um, a class three soil, not typically a soil that you would grow vegetables in. But I, over, you know, over the last 20 years uh, being here on, on, on this farm, um, I've been able to, with, you know, proper, proper uh, cultivation techniques, turn my, my hard, chunky black clay into a really, really nice uh, performing soil. It breaks up really in, uh, in, some, in some very small particles, nice, nice it retains its soil structure. Um, I love the black clay because it, it just makes super yummy tasting vegetables. It just got, it's really high in mineral content. Yeah, yeah. And so speaking of that, how did you choose your crops and have they changed over the years? Because I know that one of your signature crops, I'm just going to say this, are carrots and you grow hands down the best carrots in the whole wide world. Uh, And I I say that without any reservation. Um, How did you decide what were good crops for your land? What were good crops for our markets and competition and um, the economics of life, as well as the, um, you know, what you wanted to grow or what would grow well there? Well, like, like most beginning farmers years ago, you know, you, you plant what you think you have a market for and what might grow well. Um, And as time goes on, you either you find out what, you know, usually it's here because pretty much everything grows well here. It's so, so warm and, you know, we've got long, long summers, so we don't have, have, uh, have problems with getting things through, uh, finished. Then you find mostly, usually it depends on, you know, how well it sells at the farmer's market or whether I have a, a wholesale uh, opportunity for it. And so initially, my first crop of carrots was one bed of carrots that I selectively harvest and kept the tops on and, and labored over. And after a few years, I slowly, I, I started to grow a different variety, a uh, Nantes variety. 
and my customers started to realize that, oh my God, these are way better than anything I've ever tasted before. And with the carrots, we've created a, a self-sustaining monster. Um, oh, they're super popular. We're super happy about that. Um, they're really sweet, juicy, and tender. But if we don't have them, our customers um, are very disappointed. So I try to keep carrots uh, happening uh, year round. Uh, right now we're you know in the middle of winter, we're still harvesting every week. Uh, in in uh, February, when the weather starts to warm up, uh, we'll start to dig all those over the rest of the overwintered carrots, put them through our washing system and put them in cold storage. So we're able to sell them over the next couple couple months. And while I've hopefully gotten some more carrots seeded in the field and uh, ready to, to to come in after after the ones in cold storage are done, um, mm-hmm. and the the rest of the crops at all it, it it's always you know it's always depended on 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 whether I can whether I I can sell it and whether it grows well. I don't grow a lot of different varieties of, you know, this and that, like, uh, you know, summer squash, I've paired it, I grow one variety of summer squash, uh, one variety of tomato, um, because a lot of my crops are designed to not only be able to sell at the farmer's market, but to be able to, to, to wholesale to my uh, stores and restaurants. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. over the years, I find, uh, you know, I need to kind of simplify my offerings um, so that I can that I can grow things at quantity that I can that I can still wholesale without uh, having uh, lots of different management problems. Mm-hmm. So at this point, how many farmers markets are you in, and how many whole, wholesale restaurant or stores are you in? Uh, we do the the one the Chico Farmers Market, and that's year round, and then. The, the Grass Valley Farmer's Market, uh, we do that one uh, May through November. So, so just two. And then I have uh, three local uh, uh, accounts uh, with, uh, for uh, vegetables here locally with you know, natural food stores and co-ops. And then uh, a couple restaurants here locally also. And then um, in the Grass Valley area, we also have a, a very large uh, wholesale account uh, with the co-op there and uh, a couple restaurants that we've uh, been uh, working with for, for the last 20 years up there also. Okay. And when you, when it comes to, um, you know, farming techniques on the land, you're certified organic, are you no-till? Do you rotate your crops? And um, yeah, those were two things that I was sort of interested in. Um, we uh, we're definitely not no-till, but we have an uh, we have an interesting um, system that that evolved from from my first farm where I just was was tilling with a rototiller, um, and so I do a, a strip till. So um, I till in my my beds, which are my my beds are permanent permanent beds, and then uh, the aisles in between. Are are not tilled. Um, they are left for the um, the annual the annual grasses, etc., to um, to emerge in the fall and over winter. 
Um, and then in the spring, we'll, we'll mow those back because uh, they can get quite tall. Uh, most, you know, most of those grasses, not natives, because this was a this was an uh, an almond orchard before uh, I farm uh, before before I farmed it, um, and mm -hmm. so it, you know the the all the native grasses had been replaced by your your um, your wild uh, farm grasses, you know, uh, rye and um, rye and oats, etc. Um, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. the the strips are are allowed to uh, grow those those um, those annual gra grasses. And, you know, it, since uh, we're in Northern California and it's quite arid, we don't usually get uh, much summer rain. You know, eventually those, uh, the ryegrass and the, the oats will, will die back and they'll leave us with nice firm uh, walkways and um, which helps keep the dust down. Um, uh, the, the crew love it because there's not walking through a big, um, tilled up loose soil, which is, you know, until it gets compacted is quite a demand. Um, and then it, you know, it keeps the soil in place and, and there's, so there's always something, you know, something growing in there or at least, uh, you know, cover on top of the soil. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's fascinating. I, I asked that partly because when I came out to visit, I saw um, one of the farmers using the broad fork and, um, you know, and so I was just, and that is such a big discussion in the agricultural or small garden field right now is, you know, till, no till. And, um, so it seems like it's sort of a hybrid, uh, solution you've come to. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause the, the no-till pathways, um, you know, provide, uh, earthworm habitat. So, you know, I'm not going through mm -hmm. the whole field and tilling it up, um, you know, knocking back my earthworm population, uh, and it serves as a, as um, you know, a reservoir for all your beneficial bacteria and fungi, etc. And it also serves as a reservoir for pests too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then you know, it, uh. it also has. There's lots of um, you know, early spring um, when there's you know, say not a lot of not out of plants you're actively cultivating. There's still lots of green green around so it, it provides uh habitat for beneficials uh besides the 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 pest but there's lots of beneficial habitat also um so it it, it provides you know it's it's like a it's not a wild system but it, it it provides a reservoir for for living things while uh you know while your plants are growing or while you have uh beds um fallow This is Cultivating Place. This week, every week, I'm thankful for food and the people who grow it for us. We're in conversation today with Matthew Martin, who, along with Lisa Carl and their small farm crew, grows over 30 varieties of organic vegetables and beautiful flowers. And they milk a few goats on Pyramid Farms, an integrated organic family farm since 1997. We'll be right back after a break with more from Pyramid Farms. Stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, I'm just gonna tell it like it is. I love Pyramid Farms carrots. I look for them and long for them at my local natural grocers. But 
There's something about knowing that as a farmer and a human, Matthew not only grows great carrots, but he takes care of his soil and of his crew. And more than that, even of his local slow food and school gardens and edible education programs. That makes those carrots and the buying of them a whole different, bigger, better, more interdependent and connected kinship kind of action. In 2021, Matthew took extra time to write the four-part seasonal sense of place column for Edible Shasta Butte, our regional edible communities publication founded by Candace Byrne and Earl Bloor. In the winter sense of place column, Matthew wrote, quote, Winter's shorter days and longer nights are a respite for the farmers here in the North State. The hot, sweaty, long, grueling days of the summer growing season are over. The cooler fall season has passed with its shortening days, and we hope the rain starts falling, recharging the soil with water and energy. Here at Pyramid Farms, our farm runs year-round, but winter is when we can rest a bit more, rejoice a bit more, sleep a bit more. Don't get me wrong, Matthew goes on. I love all the seasons and all the different workflows and crops they bring. But after 23 years of farming, the farmer writing this gets tired and burnt out a little sooner in the year than when I was younger. So winter is a sweet relief. The crew here, although much younger than Lisa or me, bust their butts all spring, summer, and fall. So shorter days are a relief to their tired bodies too. And they smile when we push our start time back because of later sunrises. Carrots are not just food for your belly, he goes on. They mean year-round employment for the crew, sparing them another job to get them through the winter. I pride myself on providing steady, year-round work for the wonderful young people who farm with us. Digging carrots in the rain with 10 pounds of muck stuck to your boots and another couple of pounds stuck to your rain gear sure beats slinging coffee. Matthew ends. We've seen farmers come and go at market and market grow and improve greatly. We love growing food and flowers for our community and I look forward to seeing you at market for many years to come. Lisa and I do love farming and the demands it asks of us melt away when we get to see all of our customers delighted and nourished by our produce. We're back now to our conversation with produce farmer Matthew Martin, who, with his flower farmer wife, Lisa, lead Pyramid Farms. This week of autumnal thanks, we're exploring the life of these small farmers who make our lives better. As we come back, Matthew shares more about Lisa's flower farming and about his longtime involvement with local slow food and school garden programs in which he believes and invests deeply. So my wife, Lisa, has a wonderful beauty aesthetic. Over the years, she's, you know, planted landscaping and lots of beautification projects. And along the way, she's also done a lot of research and development in, she grows 
a lot of uh, a lot of perennials and a lot of exotic greeneries to put in with their annual in her, in her flower bouquets. Well, about three years ago, she started putting flowers together and we got her a spot at our at the market. We had to, you know, get approval to, to sell flowers at our stand. And I gave her some table space. And um, over the last three years, she's gained a lot of traction and really made a, really made quite a, a splash at the market. Her bouquets are, are, they're not your typical field dome type uh, bouquet. She de- she's, she's got lots of exotic greenery and multi-levels and, and the, I call them, I, I call them more arrangements than, than bouquets. Um, just the aesthetic to them is, is, it's very modern and just, you know, not the stuff you typically see at a, at a farmer's market. Well, and I think it really speaks to, especially in this last year and a half where, you know, one of the things that most of us came to a kind of alarming realization of is that the the large systems that bring us food to the grocery stores or, you know, flowers to the florists are so large and unwieldy and based on embodied energy and far, far away suppliers, um, that they were not resilient or adaptive or flexible in these times. And, you know, so for those of us who might have spent 15 or 20 percent of our our normal grocery bill at the farmer's market, all of a sudden that became a primary supplier. And the the small farms like yours uh, were able to to meet that uh, that demand uh, flexibly and creatively and beautifully. And I think in the last five, you know, five, if not 10 years, a lot of small diversified farms have found that adding these creative elements to their offerings like flowers and herbs um, all in all seasons uh, really adds to not only their attractiveness, but their their economic sustainability as a farm. It's been it's been fantastic to to be involved in consumers and consumer demand um, growing and growing and growing, and small farms uh, popping up uh, everywhere. And that right now, the last few years, uh, flower farms um, are popping up everywhere. Um, the floral industry has huge huge. Um, uh, just a lot of unsustainability challenges. You know, it's designed on on growing things in in other countries and and air shipping them. And when you don't have all those flights, the the that quickly becomes unsustainable. And so the, the local flowers uh, have benefited greatly by by the the, the decreased air flights um, and the local food movements. Uh, you know, this last year was a record year. Um, we had record yeah. sales at the farmers market, um, and it was a quite a bit of a, a wake up call f- for not only farmers um, but consumers. Um, yeah, as a farmer, I, I ha- all of a sudden had to had to consider my supply chain, and and anything that I or I purchase might not be available or uh, might take uh, extra time to get here. And then as a consumer. When restrictions first came, um, there was, you know, the 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 panic buying. Um, I remember walking into one of my uh, local uh, accounts and on a Monday morning, bringing them uh, a shipment of carrots and walking into the walk-in cooler 
and the cooler was nearly empty. And I said, what happened? The, did the truck, truck break down? And they're like, no, the, the truck's, it's late. It's on its way, but we're getting like 25% of what we wanted to order. Um, and that, that kept up weeks, um, you know, because yeah, the, yeah. the whole, the, the supply chains were upended. Uh, people weren't eating at restaurants. And so all of a sudden, they needed to provide themselves with three meals a day instead of, you know, uh, three meals a week. So that changed things virtually overnight. Yep. And that sort of brings me nicely to this idea of, you know, of the important role of local farms and farmers, uh, whether they're small or, or large, however you might, you know, describe them, and their their role in our local economies and how much healthier and more adaptive these local economies are than the large one, which then brings me to the importance of growing young farmers and young gardeners. And I, I would love for you to share with us a little bit more about your involvement with our regional slow food chapter, the Slow Food North Valley, and their school garden program, and and kind of what it is and why you are involved in it, Matthew. Okay, so uh, a very good uh, a very good friend of mine runs the local uh, one school's uh, garden program, and for years she would have have um, the children and one of their assignments. They would ask ask questions of a farmer, and then I would come into the classroom and answer those questions and take other questions, and it it's it's a it's a joy to do that. I I I love the interaction. It, it's fascinating for me, and so we wanted to expand on that. and And school gardens are are there. They're all, they're all different. They're not under one umbrella. They're run by volunteers or a teacher, or you know, they're they very rarely have any money in the budget. So we formed a, a a slow food chapter whose focus was on school gardens and edible education. And so it's a, a small group of us, and we just years ago just started and seeing how we can how we can help individual school gardens um, in any way we can so uh, with resources or um, I've uh, we've raised money I do um, uh, as a as a Thanksgiving um, our farmers market at our Thanksgiving for many years I've uh, given 100% of our sales to um, Heifer International. And so the last few years, I decided to change it up and bring my giving local. So I've been able to um, make uh, some very nice contributions to the our local, that uh, slow food chapter. Um, so we've, we've got, you know, we've given out grants to, to people, to, to local schools, um, but it's it's very challenging. It's like it's all decentralized. There's no there's no one central um, administration. Um, 
and so our 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 dream is to to you know in the meantime while we're individually helping uh individual school gardens with resources or or volunteers our dream is to have enough um have a have have someone that we can then that can kind of pull together these school gardens and provide them with more resources and more volunteers um and uh you know volunteer crews to say like oh you guys need some raised beds built here let's let's build some raised beds for you um so we're we're doing anything we can um to to help our our local school gardens or edible education programs in any way possible um one time last uh two years ago uh i was i was there were supposed to be an on on farm uh, the school kids were supposed to come out and do a um, an on-farm tour and do a, a vegetable tasting here. And the, the the teacher was sick, and substitute teachers can't can't lead field trips. So I found I grabbed my my vegetable samples and drove down to the school and and we did the the vegetable sampling there. Um, and and it's, it's something I I really enjoy. So we're we're doing our best to 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 do any, you know, to increase those offerings uh, to, to help the, the local school gardens in any way we can. Yeah. And it is, you know, there's this, <clears throat> there's this dilemma, right, between centralization and decentralization and, and pros and cons on both sides of, of any situation and those concepts. But one of the things that I have really struggled with in my own experience of school gardens is how reliant they are, one, on volunteers, um, and two, on often an individual volunteer so that there is a, you know, a parent who comes in with a child and is really gung ho and makes it happen and gets some grants and gets these raised beds. And, and then that child naturally, you know, graduates, moves on. And, and so does that parent or there's burnout. And, you know, I love, of course, Alice Waters, um, edible back edible schoolyard uh curriculum but one of the things that i i learned in you know just the last 10 years of experience and interactions is is the importance of individual schools and and communities and cultures not being given this one size fits all garden education format but but really leaning into their own communities of culture and history and needs and and climates to develop a program that works for those people in those places and so again there's i'm i'm hoping you know with models like uh slow food north valley and you know efforts from the national slow food or the national uh, edible schoolyard, that there are ways that these can be adapted on the ground and that school districts get behind the idea that this is important curriculum um, to teach young people the joy of it, to give them the activity of it, and to hopefully inspire lifelong gardeners and farmers. Yeah, as you mentioned, the the the, the tenuousness of of the of a garden program uh, generally resides on one person's shoulders, and and that's one thing we're 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 trying to to somewhat eliminate with a little more backstop, um, you know, more support. So if a parent moves on, and it, it isn't like all of a sudden the the garden um, the garden dies, 
you know, there's, there's someone to step in. Um, and so having, having, uh, having some support um, that's not just, not just driven by the, by the, the, the internal school volunteers, but having support from, from outside of the school would be a big, huge, huge help to, to these, these programs. Right. And I feel like it is to some extent um, dependent on the understanding that gardening and cultivation are valuable, that these are a a held up value in our society um, as important as art and literature and music and math. And as you and I know, gardening and farming involve all of those uh, knowledge bases in in a lot of ways. Yeah, our our ultimate dream would be have a you know line items and and schools budgets for for their school garden programs. That that would be fantastic. Well, it has been such a joy to speak to you, especially at this moment where I hope there is such a uh, an enduring and persistent spotlight shown on our important small farmers who are tending the land with care and integrated into their communities, Matthew. You know, as you as you look back on these 20 years and you look back on just this last year, what are what are your greatest joys in this work, Matthew? Um, I think my biggest joy is is seeing seeing um, seeing the 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 young children at the market who come to the farmers market and insist that they're by by our carrots. Um, <laughs> it, you know, just to see someone young um, that can taste you know, that can taste something that they like and insist upon it. Um, it, it's, it probably gives me the most joy uh, to see the, the direct, the direct, um, the direct influence in, in young people's lives, um, whether it's at the farmer's market or whether it's uh, sampling one of our vegetables um, uh, with the schools. Um, it, it's, that's, probably the thing that, that, that brings me in the most joy. Is there anything else you would like to add about your work or uh, your integration in the community at this time? We're so, so very um, grateful for, for our local community and the, and the support that they've given us over the years. Um, you know, small farmers, uh, we don't uh, exist in a vacuum. Uh, we exist in these communities and Without their support, uh, that we wouldn't exist. Um, it's been the the community support over over the last uh, over twenty years um, that's enabled me to 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 grow my farm and um, have so many wonderful employees and and teach so many people so many wonderful things um, and 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 make a living doing something. Uh, that uh, that both I and my wife love so much. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a, a great pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor. You got me you got me teared up at the end there. Matthew Martin, along with his wife and fellow farmer Lisa Carl, grows over 30 varieties of organic vegetables and beautiful flowers, 
and milks a few goats on Pyramid Farms, an integrated organic family farm since 1997. They sell their produce and flowers at the Saturday Farmer's Market in Chico and Grass Valley, California, and directly to stores locally and regionally. They are an example of the small environment and human-minded people who make good food possible. I am thankful for them, wherever they farm and whoever they are, small farmers grow us all. In 2021, Matthew wrote the four-part Sense of Place column for Edible Shasta Butte, describing life on the farm in four seasons. To read and see more about how Pyramid Farms grows food, soil, community, young farmers, and discerning eaters, as well as an economy we can live with. Head over to cultivatingplace.com and follow the links under the podcast tab for this week's episode notes. But whoever your local farmers are, thank them this week, will you? Join us again next week when we head to the San Francisco Bay Area and hear more about a creative, pandemic-born endeavor of plant and tree lovers leading community tree identification walks for the edification of us all. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. If you are a supporter of Cultivating Place, thank you. We're also made possible by partner support from the California Native Plant Society and the American Horticultural Society. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, producer and development director Sarah Bohannon, and we're grateful for tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Oh.